I kind of saw that there wasn't a lot of resources about the Jamstack, so I put together this Jamstack handbook, which kind of gives like an unbiased look at the ecosystem. I think we're still very young in the tooling world, and it's kind of like the same thing we've been seeing with serverless, where a while ago, like that was very difficult to get up and running, but now it's like so smooth to get services quickly moving up onto AWS and other providers. But I think the same thing's going to keep happening with the Jamstack. Like we have some awesome things now, but I think it's going to keep growing and make it even easier to build awesome performance sites. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we've got Colby Fayok. Hey, Colby. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for what you've done for the community, and which is why you're here. So do you want to intro yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm a UX designer and front-end engineer by day. Um, on the side, I do content creation for kind of educational materials. Uh, so that includes articles, videos, egghead lessons, um, but it's really just helping others learn by doing, which has become a passion. Excellent. Yeah, content creations, uh, it's, honestly, it feels like it's kind of picking up steam. Like We were just chatting about the Party Corgan Network, so if anybody knows about Chris and Jason, who have both been on this podcast, you know that they have a network and our Discord of folks who stream and write blog posts and create books like yourself. Um, but it's exciting to see, especially at this time where we're all kind of hanging out inside and you know, not working in the office and stuff like that. So, but you recently just created something, and that's which is why you reached out and like I had you on to talk about the Jamstack handbook. So, you want to talk about that and what that sort of entails? Yeah, sure. So, I kind of saw that there wasn't a lot of resources about uh, published resources about the Jamstack. So, I thought it would be a good opportunity. So, um, I put together this Jamstack handbook, which kind of gives like an unbiased look at the ecosystem of the Jamstack, kind of what it's good for, some of the challenges it has. And then I have three walkthroughs to kind of get you started at like an increasingly complex examples. So, we go through just Building a simple Next.js app with Vercel. Then we spin up a Gatsby app onto Netlify, sourcing content from GraphCMS, and then doing an e commerce shop with uh, Next.js again. But then we put that on S3 um, and we use Snipcart for the e commerce part. Okay. Very cool. I mean, that's like a lot of familiar names and, and projects and stuff like that for the jam. And I guess that's true around the sort of the published content. Uh, and the thing is, like, you, you don't work for like a large company or anything like that. Like, you created this as part of your own accord, and like, I guess your love for the jam or the web. Yeah, exactly. Um, I work for a small software shop called Element eighty four, which really has nothing to do with the Jamstack aside from my interest and kind of our philosophy going into apps because we've really bought into serverless, which isn't necessarily the same as Jamstack. You know, they're kind of very similar, but. Jamstack fits right into that kind of concept. And uh, we've been doing sites dumped into S3 for a while now, so it really fits well with that. So just trying to share what I've learned through that and you know help that concept grow. Yeah, and like also mentioning your background too. So like I guess do you have a lot of experience in the web? Did you come from a place where the Jamstack has been, you know, pretty prominent in your, your career? Or like you mentioned your sort of your introduction through serverless, but I'm I'm curious of like your introduction to the web and sort of how you got to this place too as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's been like um, something that has been foundational to my entire presence. You know, like I, of course, I was doing simple things when I first started out on the web, like creating static HTML pages uh, just to create a band site or something. But I think really my first foray into this concept was working at an e-commerce company called ThinkGeek, where we weren't necessarily going all in on the Jamstack approach, but it was kind of similar, where the site was very, very cached on the checkout, but then we would load and serve people through like APIs, which wasn't traditional for the company when we were going through that, but it served really well and gave us that client-side approach where we were able to serve that page really fast, but still provide a good shopping experience. Okay, very cool. So I'm, I'm curious the, as well in your experience and I guess running up into this book too as well, walking through building a Jamstack project that all makes sense, but I'm curious of also hearing about things in the ecosystem that are missing? Like, did you discover things that were not apparent in building this? Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of awesome stuff that's been going on with the tooling, but there's still like a struggle to try to get some of the concepts that people traditionally get with some of the more traditional stacks. Like I know at my work, there's a lot of people who are Ruby on Rails fans, for instance, where you can do a ton of things like write with Rails. And I know there's some cool frameworks coming out like Blitz.js that builds on top of Next. Uh, I haven't played with it yet, but part of what they're promising is that it's the Ruby on Rails for the Jamstack. So that's it's kind of interesting to see, but I think we're still very young in the tooling world, and it's kind of like the same thing we've been seeing with serverless, where I don't know if you're familiar with the serverless framework, but like a while ago, like that was very difficult to get up and running, but now it's like so smooth to get services quickly moving up onto AWS and other providers. But I think the same thing's going to keep happening with the Jamstack. Like we have some awesome things now, but I think it's going to keep growing and make it even easier to build awesome performance sites. So I remember serverless. Actually, serverless is on like one of the first five episodes on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the stuff they were doing was pretty groundbreaking. The the idea of like I know we have an Amplify now, which helps us get up and running with like really trivial things mm-hmm. uh, and connecting all the pieces together. But four years ago, when this podcast started, like none of that existed. So sort of echoing what you just said. And like I, I definitely feel the pain of trying to do things and then punning on them and like walking away. Mm-hmm. So if it's challenging or if it's gonna take me like a day and a half to figure out how to sort of connect the dots, I start trying to figure out is it worth the value or worth the time of me figuring this out, or can I sort of figure out how to copy and paste this thing from Stack Overflow or whatever it is. <laughs> right. Um, but I think it is true, like with the the decoupling of the Jamstack and like you have to make the decisions and pick the different stuff off the shelf, that can be a little daunting. And I'd mentioned, so I actually had an entire episode with Ohad from Stackbit, and their pitch is actually taking away that decision fatigue, and you're able to get up and running and select your tools and get into the Stackbit Studio rather quickly to then now you're at the point where you're just sort of editing copy at that point. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to make the decisions on e commerce. And like if everybody's using Stripe or everybody's using Snipcart, like just go ahead and give me a template that already has that connected. For sure. So that way I can get this thing off the ground really quickly. So, in your work, and I know you're all doing into the Jamstack, but it's not like are you work at an agency where you're doing multiple projects? Yeah, I mean it's kind of an agency. Like we don't necessarily consider ourselves an agency, but it's pretty much because we do contract work. But we're, typically, we'll be on one project at a time, depending on the person. Um, so, like right now, for example, I'm working on a satellite tasking dashboard, which uh, gives the ability for searching geospatial data and being able to task a satellite. So that kind of stuff right now. Cool. And then, like, I'm curious then about your side projects then, because I imagine the handbook comes out of your experience. So, like, I see Next.js as one of the the tools that you leverage. 
Like, are you a big Next.js fan? Do you always use Next.js for all your things? Do you have like your Jamstack, I guess, recipes mm-hmm. per se? So for a while, I was like pure Gatsby, and it was just because it was so easy to get sites up and running with Gatsby. But there's nothing wrong with Gatsby now. But I've really grown fond of Next.js because I feel like the decisions they're making, both behind the framework that they're building and the APIs they provide for people to build things, is very like it just feels right and it becomes really powerful to do a bunch of things that you want to do. So I, I'm really happy with the growth that they've been having, and it seems like they're really pushing hard at getting things even better, which is very impressive. Yeah, as an outsider, because I don't contribute to Next.js or work for Vercel, but it has seemed that they've sort of doubled down on adding some of the features folks have been wanting. So like the static mm-hmm. generation that happens in Next.js that was shipped earlier this year, I remember that issue was opened like two <laughs> years ago. And it was like almost going to be shipped soon. Maybe it was longer or shorter than two years. But anyway, I remember that issue, because I actually watched that issue nice. until it finally got into like a proper RFC. But yeah, that kind of just unleashed a lot of different things that people are waiting for. Because mm-hmm. not every time you want to actually deploy an entire server to host your JavaScript app, if you are doing some simple things that just need to talk to a bunch of client-side rendered things, then there's a lot of value in being able to have that static-generated stuff. But yeah, I, I would say that I'm, I'm a big fan of Next.js, and I've now have my second project I've shipped uh, using Next.js, nice. and looking forward to continuing to like take existing templates and frameworks and then quickly giving my ideas out the door because, like, I think there is like misnomer of like when you're a junior engineer or you're an engineer that just wants to learn cutting edge stuff. Like, you have one of two things you can do: you like try to convince your boss or your manager to like let you use the next cool thing, or you could just like get really good at something and ship stuff really fast that way. And I think there's this constant need to always learn something new and change it up. But at the end of the day. Like if something's working for you, like I look at the Laravel community that are so like writing PHP and stuff like that, and like in my mind, PHP was always like, oh, that was like the old way we did things. But Laravel's got like a very vibrant community. It's actually a, a very popular framework that does a lot of stuff for you and gets out of the way really quickly. Um, which I highly recommend, folks, check that out if you're interested. I don't know anything about it, but what I'm getting at is like, if you have the tools and you figured it out, like do it until it breaks. Yeah. Or when it breaks, then fix that one piece. And I think that whole decoupling of the Jamstack, like, yes, you might, FaunaDB might get purchased by Google. I don't think that's going to happen, but if it does, things <laughs> will change. You'll have to migrate stuff off. But the beauty is that you could export your stuff and then host it somewhere else. Yeah. And that's just only one piece that has to get changed. The rest of the your app is still working and functional. It just happens to be the URL where the, the database is pointed to just changed. For sure, yeah, and the the PHP is an interesting one because I also think about uh, Ruby and Rails, and like it seems for a while that it was kind of fading out, but there seems to be like a recent resurgence in people like advocating for it, which is interesting because it's still like an awesome tool. But like I know Will Johnson, for an example, is trying to put together a bunch of resources to help people learn Rails, and it's cool to see because it's still helping the community help each other's frameworks like build. With the good things and the bad things about each other, um, so I think it's just going to help the overall community be better. Yeah, it is, and it's like it's easy to say. I, I mean, we're in a very polarizing. Um, well, you're in the states, so the states <laughs> is very polarizing. It's either you know left or right, or it's either this or that. It's either next or Gatsby, and like sometimes it doesn't have to be either or. Mm-hmm. It could just be let's just get the job done and move forward. Uh, and like I didn't mean to make that a political soapbox moment or anything like that. Like. <laughs> Feel free to like, have your own ideas and thoughts, and like push for your your candidates and stuff like that for sure. But what I'm getting at is, 
like if Ruby on Rails works for you, like Ruby on Rails worked for me seven years ago. That's that's my introduction into web development as a whole. And I have like a soft spot for Ruby on Rails. I don't write Ruby or Rails today. I only fix bugs when I have to. So if I if, <laughs> so GitHub today popular, like they're on Rails. So if there's something that I have to sort of touch or massage, like I understand how it works. And it's like invaluable to my career because I don't work as a full-time engineer at GitHub and work on the, the app. But if I need to make a change, I'm able to actually jump in there and be like, okay, just move this around right. and then get a review from like the bazillion engineers that can review code on, in Rails code uh, and then learn from there. But I guess what I'm getting at is like there's so much opportunity and like we had mentioned the uh, Blitz too as well, and like their sort of pitch as being the rails for React apps or mm-hmm. modern JavaScript apps. And I actually had a chance to play with that. And the fact that they, I use the term recipes, Blitz has recipes as well, where you can literally just do a recipe for Blitz that includes Auth0, includes, you know, well, it's Prisma by default, but includes Prisma and like you have up and running an application. So, like, what you get from the Jamstack handbook, you get that as like nice little snippets and recipes within the Blitz framework. So, like, it'd be really cool to see what you have shipped here, even shipped to a, a Blitz recipe. And then that way people just be like, oh, yeah, this this works. These are all the bells and whistles I need. For sure. And it's great to be able to very rapidly get up and running with uh, you know awesome solutions pre-baked like that. Yeah, so if you don't mind, I want to talk more about the... Um, so you have an entire section in your book, which is called the not-so-good parts of the Jamstack. I want to talk more about that, because there, there are more areas, and I guess you've discovered in the process of your learning, where the Jamstack sort of falls down as well. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that you were kind of alluding to uh, just a minute ago was the decoupled uh, services. So, like, you might have one front end that reaches out to a bunch of different services. And I think that was one point that um, Matt from WordPress kind of argued in his blog post that has kind of surfed around the web lately. And I think there is validity to that because, you know, trying to manage a bunch of different sources and services can be challenging, especially with things like billing. But at the same time, I think there's something to be said about the focus that you get from each services. So for instance, if you're using something like Fauna, you're going to be sure that they're going to do their job and provide an exceptional service for a database where you can focus on the things that are important for your application, the things that are actually special for your application, which it might not be a database if that doesn't need to be completely custom made. How about uh, the concept of build time? So like, you, you come from Gatsby and Gatsby previously had issues with build times. I think some people have been public about internal Gatsby build times and how they've been very long. Mm -hmm. I personally know from working with Gatsby uh, and actually contributing that their build times can be extensive. But just in general, when you have all this decoupling of these aspects, do you want to talk about that and sort of how do you circumvent that? Sure. Uh, so I think the build times are an interesting one because traditionally, like some of the stacks that I've worked on, like one of the Rails projects that I worked on, deploy times were well over half an hour. So, like coming from Gatsby, I know like some of the comments were extremely long build times, which you know is kind of rough. But a lot of the times you see those things compared against WordPress, which is pretty instantaneous, which doesn't speak towards like a lot of the more enterprise uh, solutions in, in my mind, where it's more people who might be just putting out a blog. Or something. And that's, I know WordPress is more than just a blog for a lot of cases, but I think it doesn't speak to the entire ecosystem. That said, you know, I think it's still playing, like attributing to the not yet mature tooling for the Jamstack. I mean, 
thinking about it, like we're still really young into this uh, concept, the modern concept of these static sites. So I think that's going to keep getting better, especially as we learn how to leverage other tools. Like I know one solution, a lot of the build times I've seen, part of the issue is the images, right? So one solution is to uh, move those off to something like Cloudinary. But I think we're going to keep seeing more and more tools that are going to be able to take care of these issues. And as these issues keep becoming more of a problem, people are going to spend more time focusing on how we can resolve them. Like incremental builds, for example, is a more recent one where that's going to tremendously help. Yeah, um, it's honestly I, I can't believe I never thought of the thing like incremental builds. I know it came out like roughly like sometime last year uh, with Gatsby. Uh, it's been introduced. Uh, I think it's introduced in Next at this point. I think so. Yeah. But like the concept, like with Webpack, we have the sort of the well, just in building in general, you have the. I'm trying to think of the term where you actually have your different bundles. Oh, like code splitting? Code splitting. That's the term I'm looking for. Yeah. So you can actually code split your bundle. And the cool thing with like server side rendering is you can actually render, you can only call for the data that you need. So you can have like anticipated loading. But when you think of that and taking that to the concept of your build time, like only building the pages that have changed or need updates or sort of rehydration, mm-hmm. like that seems. Pretty novel, but also it's nice to see that we're sort of advancing like into a new realm. Because I think once you sort of take like again going back to like Blitz and Ruby on Rails, like you you set up the layer of people just to get involved really quickly. Like the barrier of entry, solve that for people, and then that people can actually sort of innovate in other areas. Like we don't need another. Well, I guess we have a whole new JavaScript runtime with Deno, but like <laughs> yes, we do get a, another runtime. It is faster. We got that. So like now we can move forward to like building on top of things like Deno and building on top of Rust, and then we can sort of like build up on the stack. So I guess what I'm getting at is like now we're looking at innovation on the CDN space where you don't have to worry about like oh man, is this going to work in Japan? Like do I have to like pay more money? Like you're just sort of opting into that when you when you choose things like Cloudflare and Cloud Foundry, Cloud Formation, I don't know which one's which, but one of them <laughs> yeah. do that thing. But what I'm getting at is like, you don't have to over-index and over-optimize. And like, I honestly, this might be fighting words, but like, you don't need to learn Kubernetes. <laughs> like, now that's that's a layer that's been abstracted away. Like, it's cool that the kids have learned this, but like, mm-hmm. I don't want to spend all my day in SSHing into containers and teammates and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. let me just uh, benefit from Kubernetes by paying very, very low money to get my stuff up and running. Right. And I think that's one of the things that's really compelling for me for services. Like I, I haven't built any huge, huge projects, but being able to leverage these services where I can get my foot in the door, start hacking around with something, but not have to worry about all the servers that maintain that for things like scalability is very compelling. Because if you think about it, like if you're if you're trying to run those things custom on a service, like you're gonna be having to deal with load balancing, auto scaling. Yep. And a lot of that stuff is, you know, might be a toggle of a button, but it's still things that you have to worry about. There's billing behind it and and that's what DevOps people are for, but <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because like even four years ago, the amount of people I'd see on Hacker News like would just rebuild GitHub pages as a thing. It's a cool problem to solve, but if you're looking to host your own blog and rebuild GitHub pages from the ground up, like you might move up the stack and like solve another problem, right? And making other things more reliable, which is like I'm not trying to sort of talk down anybody who wants to solve that problem, but I guess what I'm getting at is this. Let's make the problems easy to solve by having like the drag and drops, the one clicks, or the CLIs, and then that way we can sort of solve the things that have not been solved. That now we're sort of having this problem with uh, APIs uh, with Chrome. I don't know if you've run into this before, but in the Jamstack, if your API is not on the same server, Chrome, the same site, none thing, mm. you would have to allow all data. <laughs> and I must not have hit that yet. I'm not sure if I explained this. Is it the same site cookie thing? Yeah, the same site cookie. 
And uh, it's something that's come up that Chrome's starting to adopt. I think in Chrome Canary, it got shipped like a month ago, and now it's starting the current version of Chrome that's out to everybody. But essentially what happens is if your API is not hosted on like your site.com, but your front end is hosted on your site.com, then you either need to set up the cookie headers to say it's okay, mm. but then that sort of lets in everything else at the same time. So it's like the same site strict is the header that you can set up. Anyway, it's a real problem I have today <laughs> with yeah. our project I'm working on, um, where I'm migrating an entire backend to be hosted in a way that the subdomain can match. Anyway, long story short, there are things that we could solve like that that would make my life easier. Yeah. But sometimes we can sort of get stuck in the weeds and like trying to solve how to get CSS and JavaScript again, right. which I think. I think it's novel. Like, if you have a weekend to kill on that, like, definitely do that. But also, like, help me out with this other problem. That'd be great. Yeah. And for what it's worth, I still write my CSS outside of my JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yep. Fighting words. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention about the book for potential readers and listeners that um, want to pick it up and check it out? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is uh, I really fundamentally believe that like learning by doing is one of the best ways that you can learn any of these things. So that's why I include three kind of step by step tutorials to walk you through. But yeah, I think everybody should, whether my book or check out some of the resources out there, definitely check out the Jamstack if you haven't. There's a lot of great things about it. Cool. So with that being said, I'm going to transition us to picks. These are things that we're jamming on, things that keep us going. Could be music, food, uh, tech-related, all of the above. And uh, since you have some picks already, uh, do you want to go ahead first, Colby? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my first pick is Toucan, which is a browser extension. Uh, I think it's only available for Chrome right now, but they said that they're coming out with more. So what it is, is it's a, a learning tool for other languages where with this extension, they randomly replace words within the web page documents. So I'm trying to learn Portuguese, for example, because my wife is from Brazil. So little bits and pieces of Portuguese words that I can learn as I'm just kind of browsing the web is super awesome and helpful. I think the other one is The Social Dilemma, which is a documentary on Netflix, which is, you know, I think a lot of us understand that it is a problem, but this really shows how much more of a problem it is than most of us realize um, with all the social media things. It's definitely something people should kind of check out and learn about. Yeah, I, I just watched it last weekend, uh, the documentary per se. The, the extension sounds awesome. I'm actually going to check that out too as well because I would like to get better at Spanish and learn technical terms nice. so I can give a talk eventually. But the social dilemma, what blew me away with that documentary is the Stanford course where they actually teach how to sort of attract and like yes. manipulate users. I don't know what the course is called, but there was like a number of the people who are now like high level execs in these companies who are focused on that problem and uh, went through this this course itself, which honestly, man, I, I wish I went to Stanford and got a CS degree <laughs> and learned all the stuff because I would be sitting like right. I wouldn't be sitting here as a, a simple developer advocate hosting a podcast. Right. I would be probably some sort of C level at one of these companies. But you know, you live and you learn. Yeah, but no, that that was crazy. And being able to show the examples of real life C levels that have went through it is just uh, just feels eerie. Yeah, no, you're not immune. Like even the scrolling through Twitter and then like finishing to like the last tweet you saw and then going back to the top. To then see the same tweets you just saw again, like that cycle, yep. that endless refresh, like it's genius, yes, but also it's another reason why I, I don't have Twitter notifications on my phone. Yeah. I have Twitter on my phone, but like notifications, I don't, I don't see them. So it's usually out of sight, out of mind, and I, I have to train myself to check my email at certain times or check my Twitter at certain times. 
No, and it's real, and it really does affect us all. Because I know for me, for instance, with like Slack notifications, I specifically now snooze those after like a certain time every day. Yeah. Otherwise, I know that they realistically give me more anxiety. So like, I still can check my notifications from time to time, but those push notifications really do impact people. Yep. I actually turn all push notifications off like completely. That's smart. The only thing that I do is like the I will have the Slack red dot or whatever the number. Mm. Um, so that way, if I do see it. I know someone probably important mentioned me or whatever. Yeah. A lot of times it's not. Uh, but I also keep Slack on the last page of my phone too as well and hide it so that way I have to go look for it if I need to see that. You have to really go deep down for it. Yeah. But yeah, cool. Thanks for the picks. So I've got two picks. First pick is going to be Nadia Ekbal's uh, Working in Public book. It's around this sort of like her exposure in studying open source maintainers and how they sort of manage community. Fun fact, Nadia actually interviewed me for my job at GitHub, which is pretty cool. So we crossed paths uh, a bit before she went off and did her own thing. But yeah, I highly recommend the book. The book's actually changed the way I even thought about open source. Like my assumption has always been like an outsider looking in, like, yes, I do have an open source project, but it's not huge by any means. And I see all these other large projects I want to get involved in. Like, I just don't know how to get it. It's like double dutch. It's like, uh, can I do this issue? I can't do this issue. Can I do this PR? I can't do this PR. But it also gives you a perspective of the maintainer, which up until that book, I thought I kind of understood because I had a lot of conversations with them. But I highly recommend checking out that book. It's also put on Stripe Press, which I didn't know. Um, I guess Stripe's a new way to get authors to leverage Stripe, which is pretty cool. It's a beautiful cover. Like, highly recommend get the hardback. Don't just get the PDF or the audiobook. I totally did not make that connection between Stripe and Stripe Press. I even bought the book before it. Uh, that's now my mind's blown. Yeah, no, it's it's a cool little service, and uh, if I ever write a book about some like thought process things, that I'm gonna put it in there, and then my memoir, B Dougie yeah. memoir, that'd be great. We'll be waiting for it. Yeah, all right. Well, everybody hold their breath. My second pick is actually headphones, which is a uh, kind of sounds weird, but uh, we've been doing some social learning for my eight year old. Sorry, my seven year old. Uh, well, he'll listen to this one day, but like, ah, kid, you don't know how old I am. But anyway, <laughs> what I'm getting at is they've been doing first grade from home. And we didn't realize how much of a hassle it was of doing like the Zoom calls and having the chat happen in like our living room. So we ended up getting headphones for his birthday, which are these Pikachu headphones. So one, he loves them that he'll he'll keep them in a special place so they don't get lost. But two, we also don't have to listen to every single kid <laughs> like say random stuff on the Zoom call when they're they're called on. <laughs> um, so it's actually give us like sanity inside the house. So I highly recommend if you are doing Zoom calls, like have a quiet place for them. Give them headphones so they can do their thing and sort of feel like they're in school as opposed to like in school with everybody else walking around them. Um, like we do it with our our open office plans already, which probably are dying at this point. So <laughs> we just do it for do it for kids too as well. I also want to mention too this shout out to my, our first grade teacher who does YouTube videos for her content instead of having kids be on Zoom all day. If your teacher puts you on Zoom all day, you need to talk to your PTA and your superintendent because that's insane. I'm super happy that we can sort of pace the learning throughout the day and like have him watch the video and then do his worksheet. Hands down, best paths we've done. We happen to be at a small school, public school, and we were able to sort of figure that out uh, with the teacher. But yeah, that's all I got to say about social learning and headphones. That's awesome. And uh, Colby, thanks for coming on talk about the Jamstack Handbook. Listeners, please check it out and uh, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. 
To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 